got a topic tonight that should be something so empirical that every atheist and agnostic in the world would affirm it, but unfortunately they don't. We're going to talk about the fall and talk about sin tonight, so before we do, let's pray for God to give us understanding here. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your goodness to us, us of all people, Christians, we should understand the depth of sin. I know we don't understand it fully or as well as you do, but we should understand it more than our peers and our counterparts in the world. Uh, We certainly recognize the cross gives us some glimpse into the horror of sin and the penalty that is due for those of us that recognize the uh, gravity of sin and the payment that it requires. It should certainly allow us to have a much more sober view of the problems in this world and problems in our own lives, in our own thoughts, in our own minds. So tonight, as we look at the beginning of it all, at least for mankind, I pray you give us great insight into this very familiar text, something that is, uh, if we wound the clock back in our lives, we would see our exposure to this account when we were just tiny children and uh, being taught about the fall and a garden and a tree and a snake and all these things that just so commonly understood and commonly discussed and depicted, and yet we need to grapple with some of the implications and the depth of what went on here and rethink this perhaps with a kind of objectivity we haven't before. So give us insight regardless of where we're at in terms of our understanding of the problem of sin. Let everyone be able to leave tonight, drive home with an enriched sense of sin that we might understand more fully, though we won't get time to deal with it tonight but be able to understand more fully and appreciate uh, in a more profound way your grace. What a great thing it is that you've taken our sin and dealt with the problem through the propitiation of the cross. We're grateful for that, God, and we should be more grateful than we are. So allow our study tonight to help us in that regard, to be more grateful, to deepen our respect for the cross and our uh, sobriety about the problem that still resonates in our lives and in our church and our families. And certainly it just is a din of noise and chaos in the world. Thanks that it's not worse than it is. Thank you for being in a part of the world here that is not uh, as bad as we've read about elsewhere and seen in history. We're grateful, God, for the restraint of your spirit. Give us, God, just the ability to focus tonight as we continue through these texts that are familiar. Thanks for this group and for their commitment to come. And I pray that you'd allow us all, not just here in this room, but all throughout our campus to be enriched by the truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's talk about some pre-fall realities as though we have much to go on. We don't have a lot. We'll do some speculation and we'll do some notation from the text itself. But of course, we're dealing with Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to open up your Bibles or call it up on your computers or your iPads and take a look at this text. I just want you to glance through it first of all recognize, like a lot of things in the early chapters of the Bible, things were just introduced to us without a lot of explanation. And when you look at the craziness of what we're reading here in terms, and I say crazy, in terms of what we experience in our lives today, this just seems very bizarre. And yet we understand the effect of what happened here. And we even get in the garden in our own hearts and recognize this is something that's not foreign at all in terms of the decision and the temptation and the rebellion against God's leadership. So let's talk first of all about the setting of this because it doesn't take much reading at all in anything that is labeled Christian to see people treating this in a way that is a lot like how we've treated Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in a way that is very different than I think is clearly presented to us and the Bible, the rest of the Bible presents it. Just some passages to jot down even before we get into this third chapter of Genesis. Second Corinthians eleven three. look at how this is stated here as Paul tries to apply the deception and cunning of Satan over and against the temptations in Corinth. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived 
deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. Just that parallel ism that comparative in this text much like the way the temptation through the tempter has come in chapter 11 of second corinthians these things are just straightforward presented as fact presented as history first timothy chapter 2 13 and 14 for adam was formed first then eve adam was not deceived he was not the target of the deception initially at least but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor the first transgressor, Romans 5, 14, for as Adam was formed first, then Eve, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is just an extension of what we looked at. I think we ran through it quickly when we were dealing with the creation account and how often Jesus speaks of these things as historical. And certainly this is an extension of that. So I just want to make clear when we're dealing with the setting, how it's presented, the plain reading of the text, how it's treated in the rest of the Bible. This is treated as historical. It's treated as real. It's treated as actual. It's treated as nonfiction. It's not mythical. It's not legend. Uh, it, it's not uh, a moral uh, you know, story. It is something that is presented to us as an actual occurrence, as bizarre as it may read to us, parts of the story at least. Some of it we're right at home with. All right, not much to say there other than to jot those references down as an example of others. We could look at others. I want to deal with humans, human beings. And again, now we're in theoretical theology here and just speculative theology, you might call it. This is not speculative because we know this, but what this means and what it looks like, well, it's hard to say beyond what it would be like, and we don't know what this is like, but here is a sinless human being. We learn a lot about the sinless Christ. This is not Christ, obviously, different constitution in many ways, though there's a parallel and a typology, but obviously without sin, never done anything wrong. The word that's often used by theologians through the centuries is the word innocent, which is a little weaker than it ought to be, although it does communicate. We get the idea. There's no experience, no knowledge of sin. That's not comprehended, and even whatever happened prior to this in terms of the tempter's fall seems to be something that is not known when the tempter shows up. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of innocence that we might speak of in terms of even ignorance. Holy, I put that in quotations only because when you think of absolute holiness in terms of God and deity, or we speak of the holiness of Christ, this is a little different kind of holiness. This is a kind of holiness we might call unconfirmed human holiness. Holiness, of course, is to be set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from sin. And when it comes to that, there is something about when the creature is made as a dependent being, there is this sense in which there's innocence until there's an opportunity to sin or not sin. We see that in the angelic class, and we see that here in Genesis chapter 3. So whatever holiness this is, it's certainly not divine holiness. It's human, creaturely dependent holiness, derived holiness, but it is holy. Everything that's been done has been done in obedience. Everything that's been done in terms of response to God has been righteous and compliant. So that's great. And yet there had not been opportunity for sin, at least not in the way that we're going to see it and read it here in Genesis chapter 3. So hopefully all those words communicate something, unconfirmed human holiness, which is a, a step above innocence. I get the idea of innocence. It's very popular in theology, but let's just up it with holiness in quotes. Let's say this, as weird as this sounds, truly free, free will. This is, at this point in humanity, we can identify with being human, have an intellect, emotion, and will, being a creature, being dependent, though we can't see through the, you know, the, the, the prism of, of perfect, innocent holiness 
unconfirmed holiness, we recognize that here we have someone making decisions in a very different state than any of us make decisions. The decision to make a moral decision of right and wrong was a kind of decision that we've never really experienced, not in the way that Adam did. He had a truly free, free will. And we'll look at some of the impact of the fall on what we call free will, our volition, our decision-making capacities. But in this case, it's a unique kind of freedom, a unique kind of choice. For him, it was a what I call a truly free, free will, which I don't know that anybody else I've read likes to use that phrase, but that's the phrase I use. Another indistinguishable part of humanity that we need to catch is that there's no fleshly disposition to rebel. Not only that, there's no fleshly disposition to have any of the things that may not be rebellion, but may be weakness that would often, in our experience, lead us to sin. And there's lots of times we sin, not even because we have some impulse in our humanity or our flesh, as the Bible calls it, but just because we're tired or we're hungry or we have some kind of physical ailment, a headache or whatever it might be. And so we might be more prone in our weakness, our fleshly weakness to sin. But I'll state it in the way that I did. No fleshly disposition, no draw, uh, not predisposed in any way to sin. And that has to be a, a unique kind of experience, as you can only imagine. Letter C, let's talk about the tree here a little bit. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we have that passage, and I'll read it for you, out of the ground. I didn't put this in a box for some reason. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Uh, They were pleasant for sight, good for food, and the tree of life was in the midst. The Hebrew word means the middle, the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also there. There's a connective, a conjunction. So we've got two trees that are, and I don't know how precise this is in terms of acreage, you know, or how close they might have been, but somewhere in the middle of the garden that had borders and parameters and had temporal space, there were two trees that were distinguished from all the rest. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. These two, we see the recurrence of the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. And this was something, as we see at the end of chapter 3, we'll get to. It has to be barred or else they're going to live forever, theoretically. We'll get to that. So two trees in the middle of the garden. This one's obviously called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is aptly named. I mean, here is something designated in the text that was given to Moses through the inspiration of God's spirit, describing this scene as something of a tree that is going to give the experience of good and evil if it's partaken of. You don't want to partake of it. You'd rather be confirmed in your human holiness, but that's what it's called. I just want to make the point that there, the, the tree is presented in Scripture, not only in Genesis 3, but throughout the Bible, as just a tree. It's a tree like any other tree, only it's designated because of the role it plays. It is something that is prohibited. I mean, it's not like a wall socket where you say to your kids, well, you can play with this picture, you can play with this whiteboard, but just don't touch the electrical outlet because in the day you touch the electrical outlet, you will surely die. There's no correspondence there because we recognize there is something going through the electrical current of our house that could injure our kid and conceivably kill our kid. So we prohibit something because there's something inherent in it. That's not the case with the tree. At least that's my conclusion of what I read in the Bible. It's simply a tree. The prohibition is what's important. And that creates then a moral dilemma, if you will, something that's good for food. It's pleasant to look at like all the other trees, but it has been cordoned off morally as something that I cannot eat. And it's simply a test of obedience. And let me read those verses for you. Verses 15 through 70, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. God commanded the man saying, surely you should eat of every tree in the garden. They're all open to you, but the tree of the knowledge 
knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat it. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Very familiar words. That's what's going on. It's simply a test of obedience. Uh, The fruit, by the way, is not named. And I know most of you Sunday school graduates know that. It's not named. You might be interested to know, just to speculate here for a second, there's been a lot of speculation throughout church histories what kind of fruit it was. Apple became very popular in Western art, certainly in the Renaissance, and actually coming out of early Western depictions of the garden scene, apple became what it was drawn to be. It was a recognizable apple. In Latin, the word apple is malum, malum. The word for evil in Latin is malum. It's very similar. The, 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 the vowels just pronounced a little bit differently. Same spelling, actually. So evil, which you might recognize the root of that, M-A-L, mal, that, that suffix and that root that's often used in other words in Latin that come into English. We've got the word apple, identically spelled to the word evil, and that is one theory as to why everybody liked to, at least in Latin-speaking areas and what came out of the Latin West, English-speaking and French-speaking and European uh, art, maybe that's why it was an apple. You may have heard that it was a, what else have you heard that the fruit was? Pomegranate. Have you heard that one? Pomegranate. If you look throughout the Bible, the pomegranate plays such a key role. And when we first meet the pomegranate being singled out by God, it's given to the priests and what they are to be decorated with on the hem of their garments. The priests are to have a a picture of a pomegranate. The bell on their, that's supposed to dangle off their outfit, their uniform, is also supposed to include a a replication of a pomegranate. Uh, You might remember Solomon, and, and this was 400 years after those instructions for the priesthood, he built his temple that God allowed him and instructed him to build. And at the top of the pedestals, the columns, the buttresses at the top of the columns, there were images that were, that were engraved that were pomegranates. I don't know. It, it, it's almost as though it's too prominently displayed. I can get the priesthood and perhaps I can see where that theory might work, but it seems like um, it, it may be a bit too prominent in the way it's described in the building of Solomon's temple to be a pomegranate. I don't know. I mean, obviously we don't know what it is. Uh, have you heard that it was grapes? Have you heard that one? Grapes because the Nazarite vow, this is usually what it's traced to, was to be, if you were going to take a Nazarite vow in full devotion to God, you weren't supposed to have any contact with any derivative of the grape. And so some people thought, well, that that's what it was. Remember, they dressed themselves after they sinned by putting fig leaves on. Some have theorized that it was actually figs on, on the tree. So you pick one. I you know, Just pick a fruit you don't like, I suppose. Yours guess is as good as any. Uh, we don't know. And maybe there is no residual fruit. Maybe God vaporized it after that. And there is no likeness in modern horticulture. I don't know. So, but that was fun to kind of think about the fruit, wasn't it? You've seen the apple, but you know it wasn't. Or maybe it was. Who knows? And God may get the last laugh that we had that one right in our artwork. All right. My point here, and I don't even need to say this, I suppose, but let me, let me do this from Genesis 1.12. I don't think there was anything poison or anything magical in this. There was nothing inherent in it that did something bad to them. And I remember growing up in the church and having that thought, I don't know, it was the default imagination of my own mind, that there was something bad in the apple that they ate. When I realized that the statements in the creation of, of this garden was that God looked back and said about all that he created, it is good, it is good, it is good. I don't think there's this dangerous fruit that's in the middle of of the garden that's going to mess their their ontological makeup up in some way. So that may be helpful for some. I, I, I assume many of you have already thought through the tree at that level already. Perhaps not. Let's talk about the fall itself. 
Let's read it here a little bit. I need a Bible. Is there a printed Bible in here? The old-fashioned Bible? Wow, that's small. That's pretty small. Genesis chapter. I used to have tiny micro Bibles. No, you're offering your glasses, but I'm not going to take your glasses. Let's read it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you should not eat of the tree in of any tree in the garden? Well, that's not what he said. The woman said to the servant, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle or the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. Shall not surely die. For the Lord knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. All right, let's talk about this. The intro in verse number one, we have a tempter and the tempter is doing bad. He's tempting. So we know he's already fallen. We have... No explanation as to where he came from. We have no understanding of how he got there. Now, of course, this is written through revelation of God in 1440 BC. So they've had all kinds of experience with with Satan, but there's no written explanation of this. Matter of fact, we won't get anything in writing about this except for allusions to this. And this is going to be in 700, 600 BC. So we go a long ways in biblical history before we ever get a discussion of the fall. And angelology, as we studied that, we, we discussed this. Actually, I had Ron Rhodes come and talk through this. But Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, here we have, and you know that both these passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, both speak of foreign kings. But all of a sudden, we get discussions that just can't fit the foreign kings. So we have some window into what happened into the fall of the enemy, who's clearly involved in what's going on in these foreign countries at the time. Oh, how you've fallen from heaven. Oh, hey, lel. That is the word translated here in the ESV, oh, day star. It's also translated the morning star. It's the star you see in the morning. It's the most prominent of all the stars. Some people struggle with this because Jesus is called the morning star in the New Testament. And they have all kinds of conspiracy theories about this passage. Stop with all that because there's a lot of names of God and of Christ that Satan is described as. He's described as an angel of light. We don't get very upset about that, but that's clearly what he's called among other things. So whatever we're dealing with here is where we get through the translation, the word Lucifer from the morning star, the day star. O son of the dawn, how you've been cut down to the ground. You've let, you who've laid the nations low. You were such a hot shot. Look what you did. But now you've been cast down. You've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. We're just beyond transcending human context here. I will send above, above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to Sheol. So, uh, I'm sorry, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, if that's all we had, you could start to try and somehow stretch that, I suppose, even if you didn't have knowledge of what was going on in Isaiah's day. Ezekiel 28 basically falls into the same pattern here. And we're just jumping into the middle of these passages. But now we're actually getting the words that go beyond day star, morning star, the one in the host that stands out above the others. And the host is the way it's always describing not just the stars, but 
with the angels of heaven. And it says here, you are the anointed guardian cherub. These are clearly angelic terms here. I placed you. You were on the mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, whatever that means. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. You peel this together, even before the New Testament references that we have. You, you put these two together. You've got a, you know, a picture of something that's unsatisfying in a sense. That we just have someone that is found with iniquity because of a prideful view of himself and an exaltation to want to be like God, as it says in Isaiah 14. And in that, he's judged and cast out. There's some kind of desire to supplant the authority of God, to exalt himself, uh, to be filled with pride. It's just called unrighteousness there in Ezekiel 28:15, And that's the best we can do from an Old Testament perspective. And the New Testament doesn't help us a whole lot more. But all we know is he's already fallen. And I often get asked in the radio show I do, the call-in show, when did he fall? And I know my partner often says, you know, somewhere between Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 3, 1. And that may be, although I think the descriptions of God saying in the creation that everything he created was good does not have to extend to a current commentary on the angelic hosts. And though there are other, uh, you know, passages that you may be able to bring in to create some kind of sense that maybe everything was copacetic in the first chapter of Genesis, I'm not necessarily sold on that. So I don't know when Satan fell. Obviously, the angels were there, according to Job, when God created the world. So we know at creation, we had the angels already created. We have him bad by Genesis 3.1. And we can pull Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 together and say, here's how he fell. When did that happen? I'm not sure. But obviously, we have a bad seed here in the garden. All right, his form. Now, here's how he's introduced. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Serpent. You see the word serpent. Instantly, you think of a snake in the corner of my slide up there. If you can see it, it's very dark. Do you see a picture of a snake? I don't know what kind of snake that is, but you, some of you snake people know. And there's the snake, and you think of the snake. You need to remember, whatever's going on in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis is pre-curse. And the curse takes place for the, for the snake in verse 14, where it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I've heard the comedians, or one comedian at least, mock this passage because they said, Well, a snake, that's no curse for a snake because that's what he already does. And, and I think, idiot because that's certainly clearly the problem is you envision the two naked people with carefully placed branches in front of them and a tree and a snake slithering up the tree. That's certainly not what we have because whatever happens in verse 14 changes the form of the snake. See? So what do we have in Genesis 1? If it's a curse and it's bad for that animal that is apparently the host animal for some embodiment of of satan the tempter which again doesn't even seem to bother her in verse one that she's responding he talks to the woman in verse two she responds so i don't know what's going on here all i know is that some artists when they painted this have tried to paint something they have nothing to go on but doesn't look like a snake you want to see a couple weird here's one i found I've cut out the naked woman, just, I don't know, so I didn't feel right about putting her on there. But do you see that weird thing with a tail? That probably wasn't it. Here's another one. Shorter version of a tailed-like child having a conversation with another naked lady who was a little thicker than the other artist's depiction, which depends on when they're painted, because beauty's always changing in terms of 
how much weight you want your gal to have. And I'm sorry, Renaissance, Eve's always a lot porkier than she is in later <laughs> art, which is fine. It's fine. I'm not, this is not personal commentary time. I'm just explaining that I cut them out. I'm not a prude. I just felt weird about putting naked women on my PowerPoint for you. Well, here's one, and I almost don't want to show you this one because Satan in this one almost looks like a naked woman herself. But that is another one I would be a little frightened to speak to, some kind of tailed creature with claws on his feet with long blonde hair in this this picture. All right. Do you get the point? At least I give an A for effort to these artists because they didn't wrap a snake around a tree. Because when the temptation was going on, we didn't have a snake as we know a snake. The word is represented to us here. But whatever this precursed creature was, it was an animal that had some commonality with the other animals. And there was, I don't know, some normalcy apparently with Eve having a conversation. And, And you're thinking, well, that's odd. Everything's odd when you were just created. You do understand this. Some kids grow up with certain things. I think of my own children, and they don't know any different. And when they find out other kids don't have those things or those experiences or their parents don't do the things their parents do, they're freaked out because all they know is what they know. So some people say, well, all the animals must have talked then if she wasn't shocked, if she's having conversation with whatever this weird animal was. And I'm saying not necessarily, not necessarily. There are a lot of pieces of equipment at the, dry, at, the, at the restaurant that don't speak to you. You drive up to a box, and my kid's been sitting next to me in the car when I drive through Taco Bell his whole life, and I drive up, the box speaks, that's all he knows from the time he's a kid. He doesn't go into the bathroom and say, well, then this box that, ha- that dispenses papers, it must talk as well. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't want to think, overthink this, but all I'm saying is this is a brand new reality for this woman. And for this man, God creates a lot of interesting looking animals. One happens to to talk to her and there's no discussion about that. What does this animal look like? I don't know. May it look like who knows what. And it doesn't necessarily mean every animal in the garden was talking. I've heard that. I've read that. There's a lot of speculation here. But pre-cursed snake is different than post-cursed snake. You understand. Talking. We've been dealing with that. Talking. I don't know. What can I say? That's what's going on in this passage. The embodiment of the tempter who is a spiritual being, not a physical being, not a corporal being, but an invisible non-matter, no weight, just no, no. Here is a spirit that has no flesh and bones, as Jesus put it, and inhabiting some kind of animal and working through that animal. Did it look like a kid or a weird woman with claws on her legs? I don't know. I don't know what it looked like. But I didn't look long. You might want to search that carefully later and see what you come up with. All right. Or maybe not. Maybe that was enough for you for for a long time. Let's talk about the temptation. Let her be the temptation. A couple things I want to point out here. If you look down in verse number four, not only does the tempter say you will not die. It says in verse five, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him knowing good and evil. Let me give you five things here that certainly were involved in the temptation. The first thing that we would note that I think is at the core of this, certainly in the tempter's mind, is, is an appeal to promotion. There's an appeal to the woman to recognize she could be better. She could have more capacity. She could have more privilege. She could have more knowledge. She could have something if she just did what, this, what, what their God had told them not to do. I know God said, don't do it, but do it. And if you do it, it'll be good for you. Now, does that sound at all like what we read in Isaiah 14? I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. 
we learn about the, the tempter who is wanting promotion. And when he comes on the scene, it's certainly one of the aspects of the temptation to Eve. You will be better. There will be something that advances you if you sin against God's command. Obviously, there is in the temptation this garnering in her heart as an aversion to God's restriction. I mean, even how he starts here. He says in verse number one, did God actually say, say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He overstates that, clearly not the case, but he makes her say, well, we can eat of the trees, just not those trees. There is that sense, and we can identify with this aspect of temptation, where the tempter is trying to get Eve to feel restricted. And then he questions all of that. A doubt of God's clarity. Obviously, there's a doubt of God's clarity. When she says that, he questions it. Did God actually say it? Well, he didn't say what you said, but you're getting her to doubt what he said. And certainly that is a part of temptation always. As a matter of fact, today, if you look at the temptation to conform and advance, because if you hold to the biblical principles, you will be persecuted and you will be mocked and you will be set back in our society. You may have to turn in your sermons to get them checked by our government, make sure everything's copacetic. But you recognize that to appeal to the culture and my own advancement, I can look at the Bible and do what a lot of Christians, quote unquote, are doing today. And that is saying, well, it's not clear. We don't know. And with the whole rise some time ago with the emergent church, that was one of the tenets of the emergent church. We really can't know what the Bible teaches. If you read McLaren or even our guy up in Laguna Beach here, uh, what's his face? Oprah's friend now. Rob Bell, you got these guys that love to talk about how you really can't know these things because we're reading such an ancient book and it's hard to understand and and to even work at it gives me a headache. And so we don't really know God's thoughts on homosexuality or anything else that is offensive to our society. So we can kind of go along with Oprah, to use her as a metaphor of our culture, we can just go along with her because we don't really know what the Bible says. There's always that questioning of the clarity of God. It was something tackled in church history under the heading in doctrine responding to that temptation called the perpiscuity of scripture. You've heard that phrase before, the perpiscuity of scripture. And that simply means the scripture is sufficiently clear, is plain. It's, it's clear enough for someone to read it without a seminary education and get the basic meaning of what the text says. God is a good teacher. That's the way I like to put it. And God is pretty clear. And when he said, don't eat of that tree, it was clear. And there was a temptation to doubt God's clarity. And of course, in saying, well, God's keeping this from you. I mean, there's reading between the lines. He doesn't want you to have this because he knows it's going to advance you. Now I can appeal to your advancement and your promotion, but I also want you to recognize God's keeping something from you. I guess he doesn't want any rivals. I guess he's a little, you know, arrogant and has to be on the throne all by himself. So he's really doing something for you in this command that is not good. And it's coming from a bad heart, not a good heart. So the doubting of God's goodness. And these will all preach from other parts of the scripture and they're I, I get that but we don't have time for that he's lying to maintain his superiority lastly an appeal to self-direction do what you want this is good look at it and he gets her thinking that in verse number six it's good for uh here's how she puts it it's the tree is good for food it's a delight to the eyes it's to be desired to make one wise now we don't have every word i'm sure that the tempter said recorded in this text but she gets the idea as she muses on the opportunity. It's good. It's, it's helpful. I should have those things and I should get what I want. An appeal to promotion, 
an aversion to restriction. God's putting a straitjacket on me, a doubt of God's clarity. I'm really not sure what all he said, a doubt of God's goodness and appeal to self-direction. That's for another time, but you could probably come up with a few more in those verses, but certainly components of the temptation. Post-fall realities. That's number three, and so is the extent and impact of sin. That's number three also. You'll see at the bottom of the worksheet, that is a mistake. So turn the three into a four. Post-fall realities, Genesis chapter 3. Let's walk through this section. Let's talk about the immediate results. What's the first thing that happens? Verse number 7, they feel guilty. Take a look at verse number 7. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. That only really makes sense, that passage that I just read there, makes sense against the backdrop of what we learned over in chapter 2, the end of that chapter. The man and the wife were both naked, and they were not. Here's the contrasting word. They were not ashamed. Now, all of a sudden, they are ashamed. Now, I tried to, in a sermon not too long ago, when I said I'm not trying to give in a complete theology of why we wear clothing, but one of the things there, something that was prohibited, was out in the open in the middle of the square, if you will, of the garden, and now all of a sudden the, the, the borders were transgressed, and anyway, I made a connection to that, and you know, I'm out in speculative theology land again, but the bottom line is there's something to this nakedness that exposes their moral problem of shame, and that's something that you don't even have to teach your kids at a certain age. They recognize that, and here in this passage, that whole point of putting on clothing is a sign of their guilt, their sense of guilt. Number two, relational death, which is a big, big part of what we're dealing with here in this text. In the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. That was the promise. Isaiah 59, 2. I should read the text, though, in verse 8, because we didn't get that far in our passage. It, it says there in, in Genesis 3, 8, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and the tree and I ate it. I mean, that's awesome. It didn't work, but it was a nice try. And the Lord said, then turns to the woman. Well, what have you done? The woman said, well, it was the serpent that deceived me and I ate. So we have a problem. We have hiding. We have guilt. We have a relational problem. It's a lot like Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 that we read this morning in our daily Bible reading, or you'll read tonight before you go to sleep. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. And in the context there, they're wondering, is the collapse of the southern kingdom, he's saying, well, it's not that God couldn't fix this. And I know you're praying and it's not that he can't hear you. He can certainly hear you. But the problem is your iniquities have made this relational separation between you and your God. And the day they ate of the fruit, they died. What kind of death that they have? Death is by definition, it is a separation. And in this case, the kind of death we're talking about, a spiritual death, is what I like to call a relational death. There was a chasm. There was a, a barrier. There was a problem. They're no longer in fellowship. It says sin does that. Sin is hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Well, we just saw in verse number one of Isaiah 59 that he can hear. He certainly can hear. It's just that he doesn't hear. And by hearing, we mean he's not responsive. Why? Because there's a relational problem and sin causes that. And of course, we preach on that all the time. There's nothing new there. And it comes with excuse making always. You should save us. And in Isaiah, we've read a lot of that too. They've got a lot of reasons why things are the way they are. They're great at rationalizing and making excuses about their sin. Nevertheless, sin causes relational problem with the holy God. Long-term results. The host animal is especially cursed. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the servant, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now, what did this animal look like? I don't know. 
look like this, it looked like that, but now all of a sudden it's going to look different and it's going to be cursed. Now all the beasts of the field are going to be cursed and so are the human beings that he's speaking to, but that one's going to be cursed more than the others. And the thing that it says in verse 14 is that this animal no longer will have legs. That's the implication on the belly. It's going to crawl around and it's going to have that tongue doing the things that snake tongues do, licking the dirt all the days of its life. So changed form, special physical enmity. I can put that in there too, because verse number 15, I should add that. There'll be enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But that enmity, there is something about snakes, at least as it's depicted for normal people in the entry of the of sin into the world, where if you have a 14-year-old daughter, she's posting pictures of fluffy kittens and, you know, maybe a skipping little goat or something cute like, you know, a long-necked giraffe. She probably doesn't have snakes on her Facebook page or her Instagram. Am I right? If she does, there's a problem. And all I'm saying is the natural enmity that God created here is that here's an animal that won't be, unless the society gets to the place that we're at, and I know it's a very popular animal now at the pet store, but that speaks to our problem because God said there's nothing intrinsically cute or lovable for the woman to the snake. All right, guys don't much like them either. Spiritual hostility. Your offspring, her offspring, going to have hostility. Now, there's something more here that's said that we see played out in the rest of the Bible. We see it even before we get to the flood. We have the godly line of Seth, and we have this, this sinful line, these compromised people. And you have enmity between classes of people simply because of their adherence to the kind of what we trust here in this passage, the contrition and repentance of people that want fellowship with God and those that don't. So there's enmity between the two categories of offspring. And I say that knowing that grammatically there's some difficulty there and because it's going to play on a couple of things, on the promise of Messiah, but it's also speaking of something that we see played out throughout the Bible, and that is that those that are going to follow the tempter and stay there and those that are not are going to have categorical hostility. Tempter's ultimate demise is assured, which is a good thing. The long-term result, we think of this as the curse, but there's some good news in here saying that there's going to be a singular offspring that is going to bruise the head, sometimes translated to crush the head of the serpent, and yet the serpent will bruise his heel. There's going to be, and here embedded in this text is our first reference to God's redemptive plan to bring in his offspring, ultimately, Adam's offspring, and have Adam and Eve, through the birth of the Messiah, undo the enmity of the enemy. And bruises heel, obviously, is a reference as made elsewhere in Scripture to the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 16. Something less theological, much more practical. Some of you sit here on pain medication because you have physical pain. It starts here, the most, uh, I think, acute physical pain for the average woman when she has a baby. To the woman, he said, surely I'll uh, multiply your pain in childbearing. You shall bring forth, in pain, you shall bring forth children. So physical pain, as we'll see later in the text as well, it's going to be the reality for men and women, but that is going to be a reality from that point on. Gender conflict. Now, I say that with an asterisk next to it because of the rest of verse 16. If you have your Bibles called up there, here's a word that's only used three times in the Bible, the word desire. I know desires translated from other Hebrew words and Greek words, but this Hebrew word is only used three times, and it's translated desire here, and it says your desire shall be for your husband, and yet he shall rule over you. That 
context, I think, is speaking of something negative, although not everything in this curse is negative. But in this particular text, it seems to set us up for gender conflict. And I say that because the next time we're introduced to that word in this same narrative by this same author is in chapter 4, verse 7. If you look across the page, circle the word desire in Genesis 4, 7, and you'll recognize what's happening in that passage. And if you make any parallel to the other use, which is the only other use in the Pentateuch, in Moses' writings of this word, you'll see it certainly appears negative. Speaking out of Cain, you will do well. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. You will. Don't kill your brother. You're mad at Abel, but don't kill him. If you do not do well, if you keep nursing this hostility toward your brother, sin, now personified, is crouching at the door, and it's, here's the same Hebrew word, desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That idea of mastery, there's the word. The idea of mastery, it it is, and I preached it this way, and I do think it's legitimate. In Genesis 3.16, one of the problems of the curse is a conflict between genders. The conflicts that we have between men and women, certainly in a marital setting. Genesis 4.7, the mastery. In the context of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the desire to master your husband, to be in charge, to be a the, the head, if you will. I think that matches the context of what just happened. Even though, and this is often missed, the Hebrew second person pronoun is in the plural throughout the discussion that Satan has with Eve. You all, you all, you all. So some would even surmise that Adam was there within earshot of all this. He didn't have to be told. Now, who was told not to eat of the tree? Adam was. Adam delivers that message to his wife. Now the wife gets directly talked to and responds to the tempter, even though he's speaking to both of them about what God wants to do for them and what God is doing in restriction to them and how promoted they could be. All that's in the Hebrew plural. Now all of a sudden, because our pronouns don't give us plurals, you know that, second person pronouns don't give us plural, plural, unless you're in the South and then they say y'all, you've heard that. That now seems to match because she takes the lead in not only responding to the tempter, but it says she takes this, eats of it, gives it to her husband, and he eats. She takes a leadership role. She will want to continue to take that role of leadership. And God will say, here's the thing. There's going to be this hierarchy in the relationship that is going to be not based on worth, but based on role, and that role is going to torque you. That's Mike Favara's paraphrase. It's going to frustrate you. That's going to be gender conflict. Have we had any gender conflict through the centuries? Any of it have to be with the fight over who's going to be leader and and head and make decisions? Absolutely. So God has called men to lead in the home and in the marriage, and that's not going to sit well, I believe, here. Now, some people say that's not what it is. They say it's positive, and they do because the third usage of this word, which is 400 years later after Moses, is... In the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7, and it's used one other time, only three times, and as it's used there in Song of Solomon 4, 7, let me read it for you, translate it again, desire, and it is not at all negative. It says, I am my beloved's, and his desire, same word, is for me. That sounds very positive in that amorous poem about marital love. So some would say, oh, it's just, you're going to really be sexually into your husband. And then I don't know how you parallel, but he shall rule over you. So I don't think it fits, although it is the third usage of the Hebrew word translated here, desire. That's why some people want to make this a positive and say something about sexual interest of a wife or her husband, which I don't think that's what it's saying. All right. No, no comment on any of that. There's the two verses. I could have put them up on the screen, but you heard me say them. You wrote them down. All right. Number six, natural evil. 
Verse 17 says it better. We could have talked about natural evil when we talked about pain, pain in childbirth. And I said pain obviously is going to be universal. But in verse 17, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, there it is again, she's taken the lead in this. But he says here, Because I told you not to do it, Cursed is the ground because of you. So this is the introduction of natural evil into the world. The ground is going to be cursed. To put it in terms of Romans chapter 8, verse 20, creation is going to be subject to futility. As I often say in the pulpit, the fabric of the universe now has been injected with something that is bad, corrupt, something that is not right. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. And that's all something in inanimate evil that is related to the moral evil of our first parents. And because of moral evil, there is natural evil. And if you talk to philosophers, as I've debated mine at the University of Arizona about this, that's the sticking point for some people. They say, I can understand moral evil, and I can deal with the problem of evil in the world the way the Bible wants us to, but I can't get past natural evil. And he'd already written his textbook that we were all reading and studying, but my introduction to his thought was, listen, the Bible explains that as a consequence, as a just response of a holy God to mankind because of moral evil. In other words, natural evil, though it doesn't have a one-to-one correspondence. We don't have Hurricane Katrina because of sin in New Orleans, although you could argue the parallel. We have natural evil of hurricanes and typhoons everywhere because of moral evil and God's judicial response to sin in the garden. Nevertheless, the fabric of the universe is cursed. And because it's cursed, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So it's not just that you're going to sweat a lot in the garden when you try to eat your food, although that's true and stated. It's that the fabric of the universe of which you're made, the fabric of the ground is cursed. The world is messed up and the material with which you're made and everything in this world is messed up because of the moral sin that you just did. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread. So going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be painful. Then I read up to the middle of verse 19. We can give the rest of verse 19 that says, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat the bread until you return to the ground out of which you were taken, which you just said was cursed. It's going to be cursed, and I'm made of it, so my body's messed up, and now you say I'm going to die, biological death. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're dirt, you're made of material things, you are spiritual entity in a material biological youth body, a container. That container is going to stop working, and and you will be separated from this biological death. And I don't have time for this, I suppose, but I mentioned it once in a sermon back in, I think it was uh, Psalm 90, when I was doing a thing on the brevity of life years ago now, I suppose, but some of you were here with us. And I talked about the acceleration of death. There have been articles written on this, and I think it's very fascinating. If you take your clues, and there are so many, I'm reading a couple books right now that have a lot of observations, little clues in the text about the change of the world at the time of the flood. It was such a cataclysmic event that you have, and you can theorize about a lot of things that changed in terms of the hostility of the environment for human life. Well, that may be something we take from hints and clues and nuances in the text, but you can't argue at all if you chart it out, which I again looked up a chart I've had for years on every stated lifespan of every person in the Bible. And you will see pre-flood, they're all living to almost a thousand years. They're hitting 800, 900, no problem. We have the flood then, and we immediately start to tank and we go 300, but it's two, and then it's one, and quickly we're down to 120. And when you used to say someone lived to a ripe old age, like Abraham at 175, right, or, or Moses at 120, now all of a sudden when someone lives to 90, we're saying they live to a good old age. 
So everything became relative as the exponential dip of, of human death came upon people. And there's so many implications to that. And a lot of interesting books about ultraviolet radiation and background radiation, ozone concentrations and cosmic radiation and a lot of things about the atmosphere, blah, 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 blah. But if you recognize biological death coming to human beings, when it was first said, it meant you're going to live only for a, a millennia. It was a lot different than it was post-flood. And it's not getting any better. I know in cultures like ours, we are extending our lifespan through medication and good hygiene and better diet and things like that. So that's not working for a lot of us. But you understand that overall, I know we've had some terrible times of plagues and bad health and all the exceptions. But if you track it, we're far away from the original copies of Adam and Eve. Things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. Even though we're putting better band-aids and propping up human life with better guy wires, if you know what I mean. All right, no time for that. Just retribution. What's coming? Well, if you look at the rest of the text here, they get expelled from the garden. There's an expulsion. Now, that's temporal. You used to live in a garden that was nicely maintained. Now you have to leave it. It, it says in verse 22, the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Who are you talking to? A lot of plurals going on here in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Certainly leaving room for the triune God. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. He's going to send him out of the garden. He's going to have to go work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out of the garden to the east of the garden of Eden. He placed cherubim, the cherubim there, which is plural, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So you can't eat the tree of life. So you're going to die. You won't be maintained. Whatever that was, we don't know. We'll know it again someday in the new Jerusalem, but you don't get to experience this. That's just retribution for the sin that you've created. And then the Bible clarifies through progressive revelation that the more we learn about death, we learn things like this in Hebrews chapter 9, that when we die, then we face the judgment. When another man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. So there is more than just, you're not going to be able to live on the planet that I made very long after the flood, exponentially less than before the flood. Now, when you die, what you did during that short span of time on the earth, you're going to have to answer for According to Revelation chapter 20, there's going to be a very exacting accounting of life's deeds. And all those things are going to be judged. If you carefully study the words of Christ, those deeds will go beyond just the actual actions of your life, but the thoughts of your life and the values of your life and the words that you said in secret and all the rest. So just retribution comes because of sinful actions. All right. Of course, if we were studying the soteriological aspects of theology, soteriology, we would talk much more about the redemption, although we'll touch on that a little bit in the future. Number nine, the imputation of death. Chapter four of Genesis begins with, after that whole cursing, now Adam knew his wife Eve, we're talking here about a kind of intimacy, sexual knowing, which is weird that the ESV just translates that very woodenly across from the Hebrew text. But anyway, most translations translate that differently, but that's the point. He has sex with his wife. She conceives and they bore Cain and they were saying, Hey, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, a little man. Some of you call your babies that. That's what Adam and Eve called their kid. And again, she bore another Abel. Of course, they bore a lot more, but the focus of this particular chapter is the conflict between the two. So those are the two kids that are discussed at the beginning of the chapter. So what kind of kids do they have? Well, the first story we have is about two of the kids, of the many kids that Adam and Eve have, and the two kids end up killing. You know, one kills the other. So we have a murder in chapter four. This description of... A problem in the lineage of Adam and Eve reminds us of something that the Bible spells out clearly elsewhere, and that is the imputation or the crediting of death to every subsequent generation. 
not only do we have murder, which ends the life of Abel, we have Cain dying later and every other generation dying. And there's a lot of discussion about what all that means. Two people should always come into the discussion when we talk about imputation and what exactly that means is Augustine and Pelagius. Uh, these are bo- they were both born the same year in the 4th century, and they both de- debated one another uh, after, I should say, it started the biggest debate, which Harnack says, one of the theologians says, it was the biggest, how did he put it? I think I wrote it down. There has never perhaps been another crisis of equal importance in church history. This was the most important debate with lingering effects in how we understand the Bible between these two theologians. Augustine, you might remember, wrote the, word, the book Confessions, which is a great book, and you should read it. If you don't read the old English version of it, obviously it was written in Latin, but you, the translation of it, you can read a modern updated one, but you should read Confessions at some point. It's a powerful biography, autobiography of his life and talking about his sin and things he did before he became a Christian and aptly called Confessions. Well, Pelagius reads that and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the way he depicted the problem of sin in his own life. And so he runs, as people often do, to the rescue, if you will, of Augustine and says, you can't talk like that about the problem of sin because that's not how sin operates. You talk about it like it was something inbred in you. So this debate between Pelagius and Augustine really separated the ways that we read the Bible. And it wasn't hard to read the Bible and to understand who was right in this debate, that Augustine had it right, that as we should turn to this passage, as Romans chapter 5 plainly and clearly says, our problem was ours, fully ours, from the point of our conception, and it was all because of the imputed guilt and sin of our first parents. Call it original sin if you'd like, call it imputed sin, call it whatever you'd like. But we have a problem from the beginning, which makes a lot of sense. Because if biological death was a part of the penalty of moral sin, we know that babies die and any generation should know that. And before they can ever make a decision about right and wrong, they're subject to the penalty that Adam had earned for us. So we should understand that. But people have struggled with that. Let's read a little bit of this passage here. Romans chapter 12. And understand, then I'll fill you in a little bit about Pelagius. Or maybe I should say that now. Pelagius said basically this. When we are created, in other words, when you were created, when you were born in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever you were born. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. Because that did not get your decade. 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Or the 1940s. Or the 1930s or the 1920s. Everybody got their decade? When you were born. Pelagius would say, God created you. And God, don't create no junk. God created your spirit, and at that point, you may have had a container that was tainted by sin. Your body may have had some some disease of sin in it, but your spirit was created directly by God, and that direct creation of your soul was a soul created just like Adam and Eve. They were biological people. They had a better biology than you did, but your fallen human body may be subject to decay and even death. That's how they explain it, is that that may be a bit of a... But your spirit is holy and righteous. It's innocent, just like Adam was innocent. So now you make decisions, and you can now determine whether or not you become like Adam in his fallen state, or whether or not you continue to do what is right. God's grace helps you do what's right. That, I hope, should be put to sleep by this passage, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, which if you've studied Romans up to this point, you know the concept of death is more than just biological death. Certainly that's an aspect of it. So death spread to all men because all sin. Now you've got to define that phrase, all sin. How did we sin? 
See, Augustine said we all sinned in Adam. Now, I know if you're really theologically nuanced, you may want to make a distinction between federalism, the federal head of Adam, or the true pure Augustinian view, the Calvin's view of this. But the idea is, even let's just merge those two views together. The point is we sinned in Adam one way or another. And that's our guilt that comes not just to our bodies, but comes to our spirit as lost individuals. We're born and conceived in sin, as David put it. For in, for in sin, indeed, he says, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So we had all these years between creation and the giving of the law. But sin is not counted where there is no law. There's lots of things that you could say, well, there's no punishment for that because you didn't have the rule. Yet death reigned, not just biological death, although that's true, from Adam to Moses. So that whole period before we got the law through Moses to the unknown date when Adam was made, all those years, all those centuries, we had death. And if you read the depiction of that, we had all kinds of problems. That's more than just nice, innocent people dying. We had rebellion. We had sin. We had all kinds of immorality. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. His sin was in a different class. And we'll see here why. The free gift is not like the trespass, verse 15. For if many died through the one trespass, that's why it's different. Bad things came from that trespass. Well, the gift is different. How much more will the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many? So one person's actions are going to do good things. And one person's actions at the beginning created all these bad things. Changed us, not just our containers, but who we are. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's more than just biological death. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, not the trespasses of Christ, but the trespasses of others that were imputed to him. For if, because of one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigned through that one man and all of his progeny, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, even if you talk to Pelagius and you talk about how is it that Christ is described as giving righteousness to people, we see in the Bible very clearly, and people had taught for five centuries, well, this is what's happening. We are getting credited the righteousness of Christ. I am now viewed as clothed in Christ, not just my body, but who I am as a person. I'm adopted and considered holy, set apart, positional sanctification. I'm seen as one of God's kids and acceptable to my creator because of Christ's righteousness. That's called imputation. It was credited to me as righteousness because I believed what God did, what he said, what he promised. I put my trust in the finished work of Christ, and all of that has been imputed to me, credited to me. Logizomai is the word that is used throughout the beginning of Romans to describe that crediting to me, even though I didn't do it. I get something based on something that someone else did who went to the cross, if you're a federalist, who represented me, just like Adam. Or if you're a Calvinist, then the idea of what it means to have imputed Augustinian righteousness, that I am made right by the act of Christ. It's the same way on the other side. I made a sinner guilty and condemnable because of Adam. Every subsequent generation had that sin imputed to him. Now, there's much more we can say about that, and we will, I suppose, if we get next time to soteriology, which is, our, I think, our last segment next year, and we'll deal with that, and we'll revisit Pelagius and Augustine. We'll talk more about semi-Pelagianism, because uh, the Arminian view of salvation and our problem is not full-blown Pelagianism, but it's what we call semi-Pelagianism, which is the idea of how 
we're affected in terms of our ability to choose Christ. More on that in the next semester. All right. Wish I could say more. Out of time. Keep moving. The extent, number four, of sin's impact, which says it's number three on your worksheet. Scratch that out. It's number four. Let's talk about it. This takes no time at all, and you have no space anyway. It's universal. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says it is universal. The problem of sin, and you could argue from chapter 5 that it's universal even to those that are children, even to those who don't know the rules, just like it was between Adam and Moses before the giving of the law. So it is even with people before their own seeming conscious culpability for sin because of the sin of Adam. Is there salvation? Of course. We can talk about that next semester, but that is a universal problem. And then when it comes to those of us that are consciously culpable, we create all, we commit all kinds of sins. And everyone is. Everyone's a sinner. That's what the first three chapters of Romans is all about. Now, it's individually thorough. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 4. This will be the last passage I turn you to. But I want you to look at this text. Just because as I was studying today, I thought, well, this is the ideal text to spell out some things. As a matter of fact, I was going all over the place, and then I thought, this is the passage. And right here, we can see representative of so many other passages in the Bible, and we can use a familiar paradigm to spell this out with three categories. Verses 17 and 18. Let's start there. Now, I say this and testify on the Lord. This is Ephesians 4, 17, that you must no longer walk, peripateo, that's the word for living your lifestyle, your behavior. Don't live like the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, the way they think is screwed up, to use the vernacular. They're darkened in their understanding, and they're alienated from the life of God because of their, here's another thinking word, their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Remember, the heart in the Jewish mentality is the center of my thinking, not the center of my feeling. So my thinker's messed up. Let's call it this. Sin has thoroughly on every individual level, messed up the way us, we people think. That was the result of the fall, the extent of sin's impact. My mind doesn't think right about things. My intellect, my reasoning, it is ignorant of the right things to do, and it has this kind of futility in the way that it thinks. It continues to choose to do things that are not profitable. Talk about crazy people who do the same thing over expecting a different response. I mean, that is, that's, that's the moral depiction of the thinking of sinful people. We're like a dog that returns to its vomit. You've heard that. And our mind keeps justifying why this makes sense. And we should know better. And we don't because sin has affected our intellect. Verse 22, drop down there and I'll get back to verse 19 in a minute. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through, look at this now, it's not just my thinking, but deceitful, what's the word? Desires. Not just my mind thinking, well, I'm going to do that. This is going to be the right path for me. Now it's my emotions. I have desires and feelings that aren't right. I feel like this is what I feel would make me happy. This is what I feel would make me feel complete or satisfied. So our thinking now is deceitful. When in reality, that's not going to satisfy and the whole principle of diminishing returns should teach us that right away. We do this thing. We know it's not right. We do it because our emotions drive us to it. And then it doesn't satisfy. And we go back to it. And we have to go further down the line. And we watch the degradation of our lives into increasing sin. And our emotions just keep deceiving us. No, no, no. This time. This will be better. Now do it again. Our desires, our emotions are sinful. And of course, our will. Verse 19 Coming off of verse 18, talking about hardness of heart, our minds messed up. It says, they have become callous and have. Now, this is a key phrase in Paul's writing. They've given themselves up. 
to sensuality, greed, practicing every kind of impurity. In other words, they have willfully chosen this. The volition of their mind was to do this. Now, the Bible talks about God giving them up, but he gives people up to continue down a path that they've given themselves up to. And that's clearly the picture of Romans chapter 1, where we see that phrase, he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. And in this text, it talks about this is willful. I just think that's a neat paradigm because it's helpful, and we use it in a lot of respects to define personhood, intellect, emotion, and will. And the Bible says, and we could go elsewhere to other passages, which I was doing when I was preparing this, and then I said, forget it. We got a clean picture of all three of these right here in this one passage. But just know the Bible says repeatedly, our minds are messed up, our emotions are messed up, and our will is messed up, and it is all bent to sin. That's the problem of the extent of sin in in people. It is also diverse. It's diverse. I wanted to do this through vocabulary, and I was starting to build a chart on this, but it got too cumbersome, and I knew it would be 801 by the time we got here, so I didn't know that exactly, but so I gave it up. But there are eight repeated common words used for the problem of sin in the Old Testament, and one day... If we had the time, we could build a nice chart to describe all the nuances of that. In the New Testament, there are more. There are 12 common words used to describe the problem of sin. And while I didn't build the chart and we had no room and we have no time, I just give you an example of categories that are described by words that we have in the Bible that I think may show you the the, the diversity of sin. There are sins that are Sin, and I say that in the sense of the word that's used, both in Hebrew and in Greek, that it's translated, well, it's not translated, but it's defined as missing the mark or falling short. That's where we get the title for this study, hamartiology. Hamartiology is from the Greek word hamartia, and hamartia means to not hit the target, to miss the mark. It's described by Paul, in other words, to fall short of the glory of God. Sin, we can talk a lot about the sins of omission in this category. This is not the way... It should be done because I failed to do what I ought to do. Transgression. Transgression in the Bible is a more serious kind of description of a different aspect of my sinful life, which may not be based on my laziness or my, you know, absent uh, lack of zeal or devotion for the right things. Transgression is like what Eve did in the garden. Here's a line. Here's a border. Here's here's a, a, a division, a demarcation. Don't eat of that tree. And we do it anyway. That's crossing the line. The right thing to do is to eat fruit that looks good. Don't pick bad fruit at the supermarket. She found good fruit, but it was the kind of fruit she wasn't supposed to have. She transgressed the law. She crossed the line. Perversion. And lots of words in the Greek New Testament describe this word uh, in, in our English text. But the idea of twisting the, 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 the right thing, like iniquity. The word transgression, iniquity. I'm sorry, not transgression, but um, perversion. It's the idea of taking something that's right and using it in the wrong way. And and all of these kind of build on one another. You can see that transgression seems more serious than just sin, and sin of omission in particular. And perversion certainly seems, and in the etymological sense of the word iniquity, seems worse than even transgression. And it is. If Eve started eating Adam, he became a cannibal. That's perversion. Transgression is eating from the tree you shouldn't eat from. And sin, there's a million things she could have done, I suppose. That was weird. Letter D. This is an important point. It is partially restrained by common grace. Now, I haven't used the words throughout this discussion, total depravity, because we didn't have time to develop a lot of the Pelagian-Augustinian debate. But to talk about depravity or sin, even in the way we've discussed it so far, can make the diagnosis of people seem overblown. It just seems too bad. It seems too, you know, it's overblown. Common grace is a helpful answer to this. 
We need to see that society is not as chaotic as the movies you watch where they have Logan's Run, Omega Man. I'm, those are the old ones. I don't know what the new ones are. I don't watch them. But where life is chaos. Every, all, all hell is broken loose in society. Now, you've seen that. You've, you've even read periods of, of history that look like that. You've watched movies that look like that. And you say, well, if we were really all that sinful, that's what society would be like. But the Bible says things like this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. Speaking specifically in this context, originally at least, about the Antichrist. It says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Okay, there's something holding him back. Then he says, the mystery of lawlessness. Why people are, in their own intellect, emotion, and will, so messed up to pursue evil, and dogs going back to their vomit, all of that, and the opposition of truth and virtue, it's already at work in the world. It's already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, you can debate what this is in the context. Most people would, and I think it's right, talk about the work of the Spirit through the church. And that's going to be removed, and all hell will break loose in the Great Tribulation. That's my view. But the point is, there's restraint. And God is ultimately credited with that restraint, even if he uses us as tools to restrain it. And I've often talked about our job as the church is to restrain evil in society. It's one of our jobs. And so we know society is not what you watch on that show where there's total chaos in the streets because God is at work in restraining sinful hearts, callous minds, the unbelief and the ignorance, the willful giving over. It's not as bad as it could be. I get that. And in individuals. Clearly, that's the case. You were a non-Christian at one time. Maybe you are still. But if you can look back at your non-Christian life, not everybody has a testimony that someone would ask you to give at some biker outreach night because they'd laugh at you. Well, not too bad. I get that because you are not as bad as you could have been. And your life, there was restraint of evil for whatever reason that was there. It didn't mean that you were not completely separated from God. It just meant that, as a lot of people have put it, you were not as bad as you could be in the expression of your alienation, in the way that you sinned, in the way that you expressed your independence and your autonomy and your rebellion against God. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. And you can look at other people who were worse. But sin and the problem of sin that separates us from fellowship with God and relationally damages, or as the Bible would say, kills our relationship with God, relational death, spiritual death, is as bad off as it can possibly be. Because until we're reconciled to God, as we study in soteriology, we are lost and subject to the wrath of God. That is the realization that the good old lady who buys extra boxes of, of, of cookies from the Girl Scouts at her door and is so nice and never turns her music up loud and never yells at anybody is still as bad off as she can possibly be. Now, will it be that way in eternity? As bad off as, as the worst person in history? No, of course not, because everyone's judged according to their deeds. But to be separated from the glory of God and his power in the kingdom of God, that's no one's going to want to be there. So you're as bad off as you can be because you are not reconciled to God. That's important for us to realize. So when someone asks, are people basically good or basically evil? You know, most people say, basically good. Well, they say that at least on the streets of America in peacetime. They'll say that. But in reality, just because we can look at other things, whether fictional or historical or global, and say, well, we're not as bad as that. We're not like Madras where there's people in India stacked up on the curbs and dying and, you know, people killing each other all the time in, in, some, in Mosul, some, you know, killing people and beheading people. Okay, I get that. But it doesn't mean that someone here who's a tax-paying person who doesn't cheat on their wife isn't lost and separated from God and his expressions of sin. 
may be different and not as egregious. It may be sin and not transgression and transgression and not perversion. But we've still got a problem. All right, E, it's judgment. I just want to throw this in because all this talk of sin, it may not fit perfectly under the fourth heading here, but I want to say it and we have to say it. It's judgment that there will be punishment for sin. Individual sins and individual people and their individual sins. Dignifies them as agents, as people like God, made in the image of God, who do have an intellect, emotion, and will, though it is sinful, the decisions that they make and the restraint that they do in some cases exercise, the recognition that God is going to judge their transgression, sin, and perversion, to use that paradigm, reminds us they're not victims, but they're agents. And I would love to talk about that at length, but I can't, and I knew that I'd probably be at this place, so I printed up an article I want you to read. Now, it's C.S. Lewis, so it may be, and it's only three pages, and it may be tough for some of you uh, if you haven't read Lewis before because he is a professor of, was a professor of lit at Oxford, and so he's not writing children's books, but this is three pages I would love for you to read this. And the impetus for the article was the discussion on capital punishment. But this article is not about capital punishment. It's about the dignity that God affords people by wanting us to have societies that punish evildoers. And he makes the point that I'm trying to make in that when there is punishment for sin, there is something that God is doing and dignifying the human being. I'll just read the last sentence of of the first paragraph. He says, I believe that humanity which it claims is a dangerous illusion and disguises the possibility of cruelty and injustice without end. I urge a return to the traditional retributive theory as as opposed to what he calls the humanitarian theory, not solely or even primarily in the interest of society, but in the interest of the criminal. That is the premise of this article, that we do something good when you hold your kids accountable for their sin, when the court system holds the criminal accountable for his sin, and one day at the tribunal of the great white throne, when God holds people accountable for their sin, it reminds us that we're not animals, but we're people made in the image of God. So I hope you enjoy that article. You may have to read it slowly in the morning. I don't know, but there it is for you. All right, let's pray. God, thinking of the fall perhaps with a little more emphasis and focus than we might just in passing in a sermon, I pray would do some good for us. Contemplate not only our alliance, it's a sad alliance, but our sad alliance with Adam and Eve in doing things and having experienced things just like they did in the garden, falling to the tempter because of all these sinful motives. But God really recognizing what an amazing gift it is to have the hope that we sing about every weekend that we have forgiveness in Christ. May this uh, article that I've sent home just as a homework assignment be helpful Just to wrap up here at the end of this discussion on the fall, to wrap up that important principle that you really, even in your punishment of evil, show us and afford us a kind of dignity that we are more like you in many ways than anything we could ever imagine. That is awesome. It's something that should change our view of us and of you, should change our practice about a lot of things, maybe even how we vote or what we say about things that we see on TV or what we do in our own companies or our businesses or our homes But I pray what it would do is at least highlight that sin is something that not only you hate, but something that you have caused us to see for what it is. I trust as we open our eyes and as you open our eyes in the word that we can not only seek to avoid it, but when we see it, we can call it what it is. I like the illustration that Plenega gives in his book on sin. Just when we keep downplaying sin and we keep telling people that that discordant note is not all that bad, we lose all perception of what good music is. We don't have any ability anymore to even read a score or recognize a good note when we hear it. And God, our downplaying of sin, because we don't want to 
offend anybody or we don't want to make people feel bad or we don't want to say when someone asks us, are people basically good or bad? We don't want to say they're basically bad. We recognize that in doing that, we give up so much. At what cost do we want to befriend people by saying they're not as bad as the Bible tends to make them feel? Let us recognize that righteousness has no context without an understanding of how deep and really how eternal our problem with sin is. So God, let this theme kind of marinate in our minds and let it echo throughout tomorrow as we go to work and do whatever it is that we have to do tomorrow and even as we head into the weekend, get our minds thinking more deeply about these profound and abiding realities that we deal with every day in our world and in our lives. Thanks for this study. Thanks for this crowd being such good students in Jesus' name.